You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. My first inkling came from a book called The Checklist Manifesto. Released in 2009 by Atul Gawande, it focuses on the use of checklists for complicated processes. Atul, a physician spends much time describing the data behind how a systemic approach to surgery, including checklists, can significantly improve patient outcomes. But it's not just about medicine. The book explores elements of the business world, entrepreneurship, and even our daily lives. And yet many of us still lack a structured framework for complex decision-making. This becomes very apparent when we consider investing. Most of us listen to a favorite blog, book, podcast, guru, or just go with our gut. Sometimes we win, often we lose, but rarely do we ask ourselves a series of targeted questions that could help improve our chances of success. Rarely do we use a checklist. David Stein retired early at the age of 45 after managing money for institutions and high net worth individuals as chief investment and portfolio strategist of a $70 billion institutional investment advisor. Two years later, he launched the Money for the Rest of Us podcast, which has close to 20 million downloads. His book, Money for the Rest of Us, 10 Questions to Master Successful Investing, was published by McGraw-Hill. David Stein, welcome to Earn and Invest. Let's talk about the name of your podcast and book, Money for the rest of us conjures up images of exclusion. Who's being excluded? That's a great question. We've never defined that. The the term money for the rest of us, uh, one of my friends, Bernadette Jiwa, is a marketer, has written numerous books. She wrote me one day and says, hey, I have a name that you should write a book, Money for the Rest of Us. That's the title. And she didn't define it either. But you know, as it's evolved, it, to me, the rest of us is is retail investors. It's individual investors. Uh, you know, I spent many years as an institutional asset manager, but I also work with board members who are individuals. When if we're going to exclude anybody, it's sort of the institutions, the big institutions, some of which take advantage of individuals. But as individual investors, we have we have big advantages over institutions. And so the rest of us is, is us day-to-day individuals trying to save and invest for retirement. We're going to get into the specifics of individual investing as we go further, but 
You know, it's a provocative idea. Individuals have some benefits that institutions don't. You'd almost think it was opposite, especially with the amount of money around. Give us a thumbnail sketch. Why for individuals is it a little bit better? Well, for, for foremost, as an individual, you can't be fired. So if you're an institutional asset manager, your biggest fear is you'll get fired for underperforming some random benchmark or not doing as well as your peers. And so it's your job, it's your profession. And so if you get fired, you lose money. As an individual, we can be much more patient. We can make mistakes and not worried about somebody firing us. We can get into areas of the market that are too small for institutions, such as closed-end funds or, or other more niche investments. And big institutions can't. And so there's areas of the markets that we can participate in. But more than anything, we can be patient, patient investors, because we don't have somebody measuring us every single month to see how we performed. As you mentioned some of the stresses of being an institutional advisor, you were an institutional asset manager. How, how did you end up in that line of work? I got an MBA in finance. I always enjoyed investing. I was in, in corporate finance for a while and found I, I just got bored. And so I was looking for some profession that everything would change around me. So I didn't have to keep going for a different job and you know, uprooting my family. And so investing was sort of that avenue. I applied to a firm that was in Cincinnati at the time. And they ran a classified ad in the local newspaper. I didn't really know what they what they did, but you know, I joined, and this was in 1995. I became a partner a couple of years later, and was with with that firm, Fund Evaluation Group, for 17 years. So that career spanned 17 years. You retired at the age of 45, well before the financial independence retire early community gained prominence. Why retire so early? Why did you leave at 45? I got to the point where, so I was our chief investment strategist, and I had managed money for that long. And I felt like I was just riding out the clock. Like I, I had enough money and you know, we had been very successful. We had, we had sold our firm. We had bought it back on leverage. And so I had, you know, I met my number and I just didn't want to spend the next 20, 30 years, let's say 20 years, traditional retirement or retirement age, just waiting. I wanted to, to do something else. I, the other thing was, you know, I had partners at 15 partners, 10 of us were senior partners and I, I sat on our executive committee, but I got, I got tired of saying we. So, you know, I was the one making, coming up with the ideas for the investment portfolio. You know, I had analysts, but ultimately, like, it was my call for the, the segment of the market. I obviously drawed upon a team, but it, at the end of the day, you know, I was writing our quarterly commentary. I was initiating ideas for changes to portfolios that we were running. And I wanted to say, me, like, I think this. And I couldn't really do that in a partnership. And so that was another reason I left. And so, you know, it's been a, a decade now and I've said, I think for, for a decade and now I'm bringing on my, my two sons work 
work for me. We work together, right? And and that's the thing. Like I want to say we again. And in in the case of well, we'll bring them on as partners. And they're not coming to work for their dad. They're coming to to build something together and expand our brand. That's interesting. Are you interested in getting back to institutional investing or have you found that you've really evolved more into the personal finance space? Yeah, no, I don't I don't want to manage other people's money anymore, institutions or individuals. So everything we do is general investment advice. I, I launched the podcast because I missed the teaching aspect of of meeting with a board, like a, a university endowment board and teaching, but I I don't miss the day-to-day performance measurement. Like and just the stress of trying to figure out what to do now. Even with what I do, we run some model portfolios. At times that can feel a lot like money management, knowing people are using those examples to manage the retirements. But we we're very careful. We don't cross the line and ever give specific advice to individuals. It's always teaching principles about money and investing. I love listening to your story because it gets to a point that I often make is we confuse the idea with retirement and work. Clearly, you're someone who still has work that you are passionate about, that you like doing, that maybe even makes you money. On the other hand, you'd consider yourself retired because you've left what you would have called traditional employment. And I think that's a good example for what a lot of us are striving for is this idea that you can continue doing the work you enjoy, but not necessarily feel like you're employed. Yeah. I, I don't tell people I'm retired anymore. I, I actually tried that for a couple of weeks, <laughs> you know, after I, I, you know, I quit, I quit my job, you know, I launched something immediately, a, a website it's similar to what I do now. And then I, I shut it down and then I said, okay, I am retired. And then people had all these projects they wanted me to do because, you know, suddenly I had all this time where to me, I just like to, to stay present and do what I find interesting. And yeah, it's retired. It, I think retired is just one of those loaded terms. So I don't think I'll ever truly retire in the sense of, unless, you know, health wise, I'm forced to, because yeah, I, I enjoy creating and doing and, and building community and sharing with others and teaching and writing and, and I'll, and investing. And I'll just continue to do that, which is one beautiful thing. LaPrille, my wife and I were talking about this the other day. Investing is one of those professions, one of the few professions where the older you get, you don't get pushed out. Like a lot of the the investment luminary, I mean, think Warren, Warren Buffett, he's in his, uh, I don't know, I think he might be 90 now. Charlie Munger certainly is in his 90s. But a lot of these investors that have been around for decades, people still value their contribution. And I, I think that's wonderful in that field. So let's pivot to talk about your contribution. The name of the book is Money for the Rest of Us, 10 Questions to Master Successful Investing. You basically set forth what I would call a good investing checklist. Why the systemic approach? Why did you feel like you had to put this down in a book? Because that's how I invest. Like I, the best investors I know. And so I spent, you know, as a, an advisor, we would recommend money managers 
hedge funds. So I spent many years and our team spent many years researching money managers. And the best money managers, they have a process, they have a philosophy, they have a checklist that they go through because it helps them to stay grounded and not let emotion drive their decisions because money is incredibly emotional and it's easy to, to let fear take over, to let greed take over. So systematically having a checklist, 10 questions in this case, to guide investment decisions, I think it keeps us grounded. It helps us from making big mistakes and it takes a lot of the emotion out of investing. We're going to talk about the specific questions in a minute, but one thing from reading Atul Gawande's book, The Checklist Manifesto, is he actually has a checklist and they use a checklist in surgery and they physically have to go through that checklist every time. I'm wondering if you do the same thing. I'm sure you've been doing this for years and years, but do you actually make yourself sit down and look at those list of questions and go through them every time you get into a new investment? No, not every time, just because they're so inherent to how I invest. So, for example, I mentioned closed-end funds, which is a a type of mutual fund where one of the questions is who is on the other side of the trade. Like who, if you're buying a stock, somebody's selling it to you. So I know if I'm buying an individual stock, which I don't, typically that it's an institution selling it to me that have a great deal of information and, and a competitive edge. Whereas a closed-end fund, it's more an individual investor. So in my mind, like I've already answered that question once. I know who's on the other side of the trade, so I don't have to necessarily go through it every time. But many of the other questions, so I'm looking at a new investment this morning in the, the leveraged loan space. So this is bank loans, which are, are variable rate loans. So I'm going through, and yeah, in my mind, I'm asking these questions, like what's the upside? The potential return. What's the downside? You know, what are the fees and 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 the structure and and these type of things. So I I do do it, but it isn't. I don't have the question written down, but it's definitely part of my process. So I'm going to run through the questions so we can talk about some specifics. Question one is, what is it? And I'm going to quote you here. You say, before we invest, we should seek to understand and explain in simple terms an investment's characteristics. The act of explaining keeps us humble. How? Because when you explain something that you think you know, so in our mind, we think, well, I really know this. But so if you try to tell a friend, a family member, and academic studies support this, that we realize, well, maybe we don't understand it as well as we thought, especially if they ask questions about it. And so just being able to explain it the investment thesis, how it works, what are the risks, that, that, that humbles us because we realize we don't know as much as we think. And, and that actually is part of investing. We don't know much of what we just don't know. But so that's an important thing, which is why you know, that keeps us from you know, putting all our retirement into Bitcoin because we get so confident that this is the next big thing. We don't know. And we should invest accordingly. So the best investors are humble investors and, and invest in a way that they don't have to know everything to be successful. How many cryptocurrency investors do you think can answer question one? What is it? Hopefully a lot more now than when I wrote the book. I actually <laughs> mentioned that in the book because Bitcoin at the time was very hot. It just got up to, I think, 20,000. And I, yeah, most people had no idea what Bitcoin is. And they just think it's the next 
thing. I think same for NFTs. And I, you know, my mind wants to understand how it works. Like, what is this Bitcoin? And, and, but it's taken me six or seven years to spend time and to feel comfortable with something like Bitcoin. And, and it's, it's, it's what's good about it, what's bad about it, et cetera. But yeah, many of the hot investments that people are, are getting involved in meme stocks, they don't know because they don't take the time to kind of go through and, and think about it and go through you know some type of checklist. You mentioned a little bit earlier, and I'm going to repeat it because you also mentioned it in that question one, what is it section. You say that you don't often invest in individual stocks and equities and more often invest in things like ETFs and mutual funds. Why? Because when you buy an individual stock, so you have most of the buyers and sellers are institutions. Most have a, they understand the company very well. And so the price of the stock based on all the buying and selling is the consensus. It's the consensus of investors that say, this is what the company is worth based on its expected earnings, based on its revenue growth, based on its, its competitive advantages. So if I'm going to buy the stock, the underlying idea is that I think everyone else is wrong, that the consensus is wrong, that the stock is mispriced, that it should be higher than it is. We don't buy individual stocks because we think companies are going to grow. Because the price already ref reflects that growth, because the, the intrinsic value or the value in today's dollars of a stock is all those future cash flows, all those futures earnings embedded into one price. It's a discounted price. It's a, that's what intrinsic value is. This is what it's worth based on the consensus growth estimates of that company. So if the company does better than what everybody thinks, then the stock goes up in price. But if it does worse, then it falls in price because it missed expectations. And you see this with high-flying growth stocks all the time. They do very well, and then they miss an earnings estimate or something happens, and they plummet. And so having spent years researching money managers whose full-time job is to find stocks like that, I realized how incredibly difficult it is. And I don't want to take the time, and I don't have the skill set to figure out why everyone else is wrong and I'm right. So when it comes down to it, when asking that, what is it question? I think what you're saying is the institutions and the professional fund managers know a little bit more of what it is than you or I, the average investor. They do. And yet most of them underperform the broad stock market or whatever asset class, because it's hard. Investing is hard outsmarting other investors is incredibly difficult. And the, the quantitative power, the technology to be able to do that keeps getting more advanced. And so it becomes even more challenging on a micro level. So you just mentioned that investing is hard. And question two asks an important question. It asks whether a venture is an investment, speculation, or gambling Tell us the difference. How does your average person differentiate these three things? So an investment is something with a positive expected return. And so it, it typically has cash flow. It might have interest income. It might have a dividend. And so we can, we can value it. But even if the price falls, if something 
if you own real estate, for example, rental real estate, if you're getting rent, even if the price might fall, you can still make money. So the, the, there is something tangible there, usually cash flow oriented or earnings that we can say, all right, the return is going to be positive. That's the expectation. A, a gamble is something with a negative expected return, where if you go to Vegas, you're going to lose money because you're competing with the casino. The casino is on the other side of the trade. And if, if investing or if, if gambling, you had a positive edge, then the, the casino would go, would go bust. In fact, if you're counting cards or you have some type of edge, they'll kick you out. So that's what, that's what gambling is. It's a negative expected return. You do it for the entertainment. Now, a speculation is there's disagreement whether the return will be positive or negative. A gold coin is a speculation. A Bitcoin is a speculation because we don't know, oftentimes because there isn't any type of cash flow, its value is, is what everybody's going to value that in the future just because it's a shiny rock or it's a digital currency. And, and speculations aren't bad. Now, I have speculations in my portfolio. It's just that the workhorse of our portfolio should be asset classes with positive expected returns. So let me turn that around. You said that investments to add put a value judgment are good. Gambling is clearly bad. You said speculation isn't good or bad. Why add some speculation to your portfolio? Well, I, the speculation I have, for example, in let's say gold coins, you know, is it's a protection, it's a hedge against very high inflation, against some type, you know, the dollar or other fiat currencies become just less desirable. Then, so it's a protection. I don't know how gold will perform. There is no cash flow, but I, I'm comfortable having five to six percent of my net worth in gold. Same for cryptocurrency. I, I don't know how it's going to do. It depends on trust, but these are these are just protections hedge. I own art. Like art is a speculation. You know, some art we have because we own it because it's beautiful. So some some speculations we own because we just enjoy having it. Having an antique is a speculation. So we get some other benefit from it, even though it's it's return. We don't know how it will return because it depends on whether people value it in the future. And we just don't know. Question three of your investing checklist is what is the upside? You spend a good amount of time talking in your book about one of your listeners who, who ends up getting a windfall. I forget the specifics of why, but gets a million or $2 million unexpectedly. They go to an advisor. The advisor gives them an investment plan and says, hey, you know, you could retire now or you could retire in such and such amount of time. And you go through some detail about why you believe that this advisor wasn't getting the upside correctly. And it begs an important question because, you know, returns are unknown, I think, for a lot of us, or we think they are. So how do you look at an equity or a bond? Maybe we'll stick with equities just to make things simpler. But how do you start to figure in the upside? Well, the, the return for any asset class, historically, there are drivers. There are return drivers. So we can look at the historical return of the S&P 500 index, so a measure of U.S. large company stocks. That return, historically, is driven by the dividends. 
So the dividends being the percent of profits that's paid to the shareholders. It's driven by how the dividends have grown over time. So mathematically, we can decompose the whatever 10% historical return and say 2 to 3% was dividends, 3 to 4% was the dividend growth, the earnings growth. And then that other 3% was people being willing to pay more for stocks today than they were 100 years ago. So what are people willing to pay for that cash flow? And, and all investments are like that. There's usually a cash flow component. There's a growth of that cash flow. And then there's what investors are willing to pay for that cash flow today versus in the past. And my issue with this particular financial advisor, and I think financial advisors can be very helpful, but when he put together that financial plan, he relied on historical returns, particularly for bonds. So he assumed, I believe it was five or 6% return for bonds at a time when, when the interest rate or yield on a diversified bond portfolio was 2%. Mathematically, it's impossible for bonds to return 6% if your starting interest rate is 2%. That's just the way the math works. So you can't, investment returns are driven by math. There's also an emotional aspect to it. But with bonds, it's generally pure math, even to, irrespective of what interest rates do, because interest rates go up, the value of the bonds go down, then you're reinvesting at higher interest. And so chapter three is, is the most difficult chapter. It's the longest chapter because it sets the foundation for how do you actually figure out what the return for a given investment is? And, and there are rules and the rules are what's the cash flow yield? How is it growing? And, and what are investors paying for that cash flow? Because if they're paying 50 times earnings, then the expected return is going to be lower because in all likelihood, 10 years down the road, people won't be willing to pay as much for those earnings, which means the returns will have fallen below expectations. And it's notable. So of those three drivers, let me see if I get this right. There is the dividend, there's the potential dividend growth, and then there's what people are willing to pay for that future cash flow. The first two things we can estimate or feel fairly comfortable with, that third thing, however, is highly variable. It is highly variable and it can change. So, which is why, like, I, I'm more excited about an asset class if its valuation, what people are paying for the cash flow, is lower than its historical average. Because, all right, then there are, it's cheap. It's under, you could call it undervalued, but there are more positive embedded surprises in that basket of securities that make up that asset class when it's cheap relative to its historic average because investors are emotional. And the reason why value outperforms growth investing over the long term, traditional growth investing, is because value stocks tend to disappoint and have disappointed, and people believe that that'll continue indefinitely. Whereas growth stocks, people think that growth will continue forever and continue to compound, and invariably, it often doesn't. Question four asks the exact opposite. Question three is, what is the upside? Question four is, what is the downside? And I feel like when we talk about the downside, everyone concentrates on how much money I could lose. But you say there's really two components to this question. What are they exactly? So the downside is, is first, how much could you lose? But more importantly, how will that impact your lifestyle? So if, if you're a young investor, 
you're just starting to save in your 401k, maybe you're 100% stocks and the stock market falls 50%. It feels bad, but it isn't going to ruin your life because you have a huge amount of human capital, 30, 40 years of future earnings as an employee or, or running a business. And so the stakes are much lower. So when we talk about risk and the downside, it's what's the worst thing that could happen to the asset? But more importantly, how will that impact your ability to live the life you want to live? You can get con too conservative with the downside, can't you? Oh, yeah. Uh, yes, people, they, they can. It seems like... By my experience, most people don't. I think people get too aggressive. They believe stocks always go up. They believe if I'm going to retire early, I'm going to put it all in the S&P 500 index because I'll just collect the dividend and I can wait it out. Well, if you had been an early retiree, you had fired as, as a Japanese investor in the late 1980s, you still never made your money back investing in the Japanese stock market. It never has returned to that peak because there was an asset bubble and a debt bubble in Japan in, in the 1980s. And if you look at the Nikkei 225, it still hasn't achieved its previous high. And so my approach to investing, and I talk about, and Wade Faw talks about this a lot, a safety first approach. When you retire, make sure your bases are covered. And so you don't want your retirement based on how the stock market's going to do. That to me, that's, that's incredibly risky. And people will go into retirement and they'll go to an advisor and they might run them some type of simulation and say, hey, you have a 10% chance of, of making it until you're 95. <laughs> it's like, well, what, what if you don't? And we get these, I, the other day, we, we live in Tucson. We, we were out buying a saguaro cactus. And I asked the salesperson, is there a guarantee? He's like, no, there's no guarantee on the saguaro. You know, nine out of 10 times. And I said, okay. And then he, then like a minute or two later, he's like, everybody that buys our, our saguaros are, end up being happy. And I was like, do you mean nine out of 10 of your customers <laughs> end up being happy because 10% the saguaro died? And we don't want to go into retirement with a 10% risk of failure. That's, that's, that's crazy. And so I think it's important to understand the downside, but as young investors, we can take more risk than we can when we're older, but as our portfolio grows and it gets to be six figures or seven figures, then we need to approach investing differently. It can't invest like we did when we were 25 because the downside is greater because of the impact on our lifestyle. We are talking to David Stein. He is the creator of the platform and podcast Money for the Rest of Us, which has close to 20 million downloads. We are going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? 
Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All around the world, tech companies are innovating and driving returns for investors. Our crowd analyzes companies across the global private market, selecting those with the greatest growth potential, then brings them to you. From personalized medicine to cybersecurity to robotics, quantum computing, and more, in state of the art labs, startup garages, and anywhere in between, our crowd is identifying innovators so you can invest when growth potential is greatest early. Our crowd's accredited investors have already invested over $1 billion in growing tech companies, and many of their members have benefited from the 46 IPOs or sale exits of their investments. Now you can truly diversify your portfolio by investing early in innovative private market companies at our crowd. Join the fastest growing venture capital investment community at rcrowd.com slash EAI. That's O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D dot com slash E-A-I. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to David Stein. His book, Money for the Rest of Us, 10 Questions to Master Successful Investing, was published by McGraw-Hill. David, let's return to the questions. Question five asks, who is on the other side of a trade? You say, knowing who is selling us an investment helps us avoid financial instruments where success is dependent on on knowing the future and or outsmarting other investors. Aren't a lot of investments zero-sum games? I mean, isn't that the idea that you're going, someone's going to sell and you're going to buy and hopefully they're going to make the wrong choice and you're going to make the right choice? Is it not usually like that? No, a zero-sum game is a speculation. So that, that's by definition, a zero-sum game, you know, there's disagreement over what the return will be. But if you're, if you're buying a, a, a rental property, that's not a zero-sum game. That's, that's a seller that decided they wanted to take profits. You, as the buyer, are willing to pay a price, but you're going to collect the rent, so you'll have a positive return to be able to service the debt. But when you buy that real estate, it's helpful to know who's selling it to you and why, if you can find out. If you're buying a used car, you want to know as much as you can about who is selling to you because they might have information that they're not disclosing, or in often cases, as you mentioned, like with stocks, most stocks are owned by institutions. That's who trades it. Option strategies the same way. And so I, oftentimes people get into investing, maybe they open up a, a, an account and then they start buying individual stocks or they start trading options or futures. What other profession would you pick up a racket and start competing against professionals. You don't do that in tennis. You don't do it in other sports, but we do it all the time in investing, not knowing that whether people selling 
us these this particular securities, they know way more than we do. And we, at the end of the day, are just guessing it'll go up because we like to watch videos on Netflix. We think Netflix is going to do really well. And I've done it. I, my first stocks that, that I bought and I talk about in the book, I knew nothing about it. I knew the name and I knew it did something with technology. It was Novell. And, but I didn't know what its earnings were. I didn't know anything about it. I just guessed. And in, in some ways, when we guess that, that even if it's an asset that has a positive expected return, if we're just guessing, then in some ways that is speculation, if not gambling, because we don't know what we're doing. When buying closed-end funds, which you had mentioned in the beginning, because they are closed-end funds, usually you are buying from another investor as opposed to an institution. So someone who, at least on a knowledge level, may be the same or less than you. When you're buying equities, you're kind of buying from institutions, as you mentioned. What about when you're buying ETFs and mutual funds? Who are you usually buying from then? I guess open-end mutual funds or ETFs. Well, in the case of you know a mutual fund, an open-end mutual fund, when you're buying it, right, you're buying it from the sponsor, right? I mean, the sponsor is creating the shares. That's who's selling it to you. Now, they have a particular strategy. And so in that case, the, the mutual fund is the investment vehicle, but there's a professional management team. And so we want to understand what they're doing. You know, what is that particular strategy for the fund and who are they competing against? Closed-end funds are different from an open-end fund because with a closed-end fund, there's a limited number of shares. So you're buying these on an exchange and they typically sell for a big discount to the, the value of what the, the, the fund owns. So it's net asset value. So when you buy an open-end mutual fund, you're always buying it at the net asset value. They, the, the fund sponsor says, this is what the mutual fund is worth per share. And this is what we'll sell it to you for, the same price. The price equals the net asset value. With the closed-end fund, you can buy it at a 10% discount to its net asset value. Or you can buy it, there are closed-end funds out there that are selling for 25% premium to the net asset value, which means people are paying $120 for $100 worth of assets. And, and that's why I just give that as an example, but I like closed-end funds because it's a small niche that... It's mostly individual investors that tend to panic when markets sell off and, and oftentimes aren't really understanding what they own. And so you can see what it's worth compared to what it's priced and pick up a deal. So I want to be granular here to make sure people understand this idea, which I think you just said, but I want to repeat it one more time. So a closed-end fund has a set amount of shares or, or investments, and those are usually owned by individual investors who can then decide to buy or sell depending on what's going on with the market or their needs above or below the actual net asset value. Whereas an open-end fund, really, it's the sponsor, the person who's creating it, who's going to define what that cost is based on the net asset value. Is that, is that correct? No, that, no, you got it absolutely correct. Right. That's right. Okay. So then uh, to go one step forward, further, because you mentioned ETFs, you know, how do ETFs work? Well, they're like closed-end funds. They trade on an exchange. And so you can see the price can disconnect from the net asset value, but you have all of these authorized participants, which are institutional investors that are buying and selling the ETF shares and buying 
a reference basket of securities that the ETF owns. And so you have this arbitrage opportunity that in most cases keep ETFs price in line with its net asset value. But then you get flash crashes where they can, it can disconnect. And so all three of those, closed-end funds, open-end mutual funds, and exchange-traded funds are examples of investment vehicles. So they're vehicles, they're packages that invest in underlying direct investments, so securities. So an investment vehicle is more of an indirect investment that then invest in the actual specific assets. So of the 10 questions you ask, should ask yourself when making an investment, question six is a little bit of what you just talked about, understanding the vehicle in which the investment is packaged. And we're going to actually skip to question seven. What does it take to be successful? In this chapter, you describe the concept of wayfinding. You say it's better to be vaguely right than precisely wrong. Can you tell us what wayfinding is? What does that describe? So wayfinding is some of the original wayfinders were Lewis and Clark. So Lewis and Clark decided to explore the West and they had, and I listed out in the book, all the stuff they took with them, you know, from beads to things to help navigate to canoes, a lot of the stuff didn't work. Some of it did. They didn't know what to expect. They didn't even know where they were going because there wasn't a map. And so they, they sort of meandered knowing they were going out west, but there wasn't a direct path. They didn't know exactly what was going to happen. And that's a lot like investing. We don't know what the economy is going to do. We don't know when the Federal Reserve is going to stop raising interest rates. We don't know when inflation is going to stop being at 8.5% per year. There's a long list of things that we don't know. And one of the risks with investing is when we think we know. And we, there's only when you speculate in Bitcoin and you put most of your net worth in Bitcoin, you have to be precisely right about Bitcoin, that it's going to go up in price, that people will continue to trust it. And it will, and we don't want to be in a situation where our investment success depends on being precisely right about the future. We want to invest where we don't have to be precisely right because we won't be. And, and that's really when we talk about what does it take to be successful, we're really talking about does an investment have positive cash flow? Does it have a positive expected return? Are we adequately, adequately diversified among many different investments so that, that we don't have to be precisely right about the future in order to have success with our portfolio? In other words, in this case, perfect can be the enemy of good. The question is, what is good enough, right? How many factors can we align that give us the suspicion we'll we'll have a good outcome from the study? Exactly. And yeah, good enough. And that's what that's all we're trying to do. And the best investors are good enough. They they don't they avoid big mistakes. And a lot of investing, you know, even as an institutional investment advisor, some especially in the early years, I thought, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what's going to happen. And they're just all going to fire us, like all of our clients, because they're <laughs> going to realize that we don't know what we're doing. And you realize, well, most of what we did was just keeping clients from doing stupid things. And, and so just doing a good enough job. And, and that's a lot of what we do. We just we do it good enough. And good enough can, can allow us to retire successfully. Speaking of good enough really makes me think of question eight which is 
really all about fees. The question is, who is getting a cut? But it makes me really question this idea of, do we focus too much on returns when it comes to an investment? Because I feel like that's the first thing everyone wants to talk about is what is the expected return? But that's not the only question. Well, no, we want, we definitely want to know what the risk is, the downside, but we also want to know, are we overpaying for this investment? Are we, you know, is it something where the fees two, 3% and particularly in an environment where interest rates are low, it, it's just, it's just, this, it is more of a checklist. What is the fees? Like what is the expense ratio? If does the fund use leverage? So is there an interest cost involved? And just, it's just simple understanding. What's the, the fee for our 401k plan? If we're paying an advisor, what is the fee? And knowing it because the fee comes out of our return and the taxes. Taxes is another expense that comes out of our return. So we want to be cognizant of, you know, is the, does the particular investment have very high turnover? In our taxable account, to where you know most of many of our gains are just going out the window, going to the federal government and with taxes. So there's a lot of churn in the portfolio, and it's just not tax efficient. Question nine really takes into account how an investment is going to fit into your portfolio. The question is, how does a prospective investment impact your portfolio? You take a moment to talk about modern portfolio theory in this chapter. And it seems like you favor a slightly different approach, which you call the asset garden approach. What is the asset garden approach? It's if you plant a flower garden, you want a variety of flowers. You want them blooming at different times. An asset garden, something very similar. You want different asset types, different return drivers, different varieties. Maybe there's an element of your personality. You want more ESG types and investments in there. And so it's less rigorous. I spent many years working with clients producing asset allocation studies using modern portfolio theories. And the problem with that, one, when presenting it, people focus on the dot. What's the expected return? What's the risk of this portfolio? They don't spend enough time on the range of returns that that particular dot could present. What's the upside? What's the downside? The other problem with MPD or modern portfolio theory is it's just too optimal. Like you come up with all of these assumptions and it's very much garbage in, garbage out. So if if you want to, for example, put rental real estate in your asset allocation study, like what's the, what's the expected return? That can be assumed. What's the volatility of an apartment? And so what you end up doing is, and we I did it, right? Well, we're going to impute the volatility of private investments that don't trade every day like stocks. So you can't really get a volatility because MPT is, is based on expected return and volatility and correlation, how assets move against relative to each other. I don't, to me, that's not helpful. So like on, on our site, we'll look at expected return and our risk. We look at what's the downside of this particular portfolio and, and come up with assumptions for the worst case loss. We don't care about correlation. We assume the correlation is going to be one because everything's going to fall together. It's much much simpler. And for those who are unaware, David, tell me if I'm getting this right. The idea behind modern portfolio theory most simply is 
charting the expected or highest return with the lowest amount of risk, i.e. volatility, right? So you end up using these calculations and formulas to do exactly that. You have a graph with certain points where you can look at the specific return versus risk at that given point and see where right. you want to fall on that, right. on that graph. Yeah, it's called an efficient frontier. And so you 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 have a portfolio that represents, like let's say it's 70% stocks, 30% bonds. Here's the expected return. And so you want the highest expected return for a given level of volatility. But like in in the early years, you know, clients want they want that dot on the line. I remember working with Excel, making my dot bigger so it touched the line <laughs> on on the asset allocation study. And, and finally, I just it's like I'm not even going to show the line anymore because this is stupid. And and even in those early years, you know, we were using historical returns, and you we could pick. The, and so I would sit there and and come up, okay, which calendar period should I use so I get the expected return I want? And it was it was ludicrous. So and so eventually we we got together and built a better model that was forward looking. But the other real problem with modern portfolio theory, it assumes that market returns are normally distributed. So you have the average, the mean in the middle. You have things that are above average, things that are below average, but it's generally, it's a normal distribution, a bell curve. Markets are not like that. They have extreme events happen way more frequently than is assumed within modern portfolio theory. And so I'd rather invest recognizing what the extreme events are, that they're going to happen. 60% loss with stocks. When you invest in stocks, be prepared that stocks can lose 60%. How would that impact my lifestyle if my portfolio was 100% stocks and I lost 60%? I'm 25 and I don't have much money. It's not going to hurt me. If I'm 60 heading into retirement, I might not be able to retire. And that's why it's important to understand the risk. And then so an asset garden approach is just to have a, a huge variety of assets and not spend so much time figuring out, is this the exact I should have 28.325% in bonds because we're guessing. This is a way of wayfinding. Good enough. Come up with a diversified portfolio, understand what you own, and go on with your life. Question 10 in chapter 10 talks about should you invest? The final question. I specifically want to get to a point in this chapter where you talk about lump sum versus dollar cost averaging, right? So if all of a sudden you have a certain amount of money, you want to put it in the market, you go into some detail about how if you look at the studies, it's pretty clear that you should invest all at once. Because the market goes up on average, the market's positive. So if you if the market, the stock market's positive, the earlier you get in, the better you'll do. On the other hand, you found yourself with institutional investors often helping them dollar cost average. Why the disconnect? Because we're not robots, we're emotional. And so let's, let's take an endowment. Endowment gets a $100 million gift to the university. They don't want to go back to the donor and say, we invested it all at once and the stock market fell 60%. So they would feel huge regret. So much of investment management is regret management. Like how would 
because we're emotional. And so I dollar cost average if I get a lump sum because I don't know what the market's going to do. And so, yeah, the, the studies say go in all at once. But if the market crashes right after I go in, I'll feel terrible, way worse than I'll feel if it goes up 20%. And so I'd rather manage my regret. And I do this with all my investing. I, I don't make big moves. It's all incremental because I want to manage regret and I don't really know what's going to happen. And I, I want to be able to just average in over time and make adjustments over time as a way of wayfinding. So we've been talking about the 10 questions you should ask yourself while making an investment. Let's talk about the counter argument. There are going to be a some certain number of people out there who are going to say, look, this is way too complicated, right? You're losing me on the bonds. I have trouble figuring out which ETF or fund I should be involved with. Equities can go up, they can go down. So why not just take all your money and put an S&P 500 index? And there's certainly lots of people who that is their investing strategy. What's the problem with that? Well, it it's why is why couldn't US be the Japan in the 1980s? So we're sitting here with eight and a half percent inflation over the past year. There's a national net, massive national debt. There are global conflicts around the world. What if the Russian-Ukraine conflict expands and Russia sends nuclear weapons and destroys all our major cities in the US? Whereas the rest of the world is unscathed. So there's all these things that could happen. So investing all of your money in the US, despite how well it's done, the US of at 1900 in the year 1900, the late 1800s, it was UK. Whereas the UK is just a great place to live. My son-in-law is from the UK, but that market didn't become the predominant market. Japan in the 80s was 45% of the global market. If we measure stock market capitalization, now it's about 5%. The US right now is 60% of the global stock market. Isn't 60% enough? Why wouldn't you put 40% of your stock in the rest of the world, not knowing how things are going to turn out? We, we have home country bias because we think, well, we live in the US. We, we think everything's going to be fine. So we'll put 100% in the US. Your Canadian investors, they, don't, they, don't, they know not to put 100% of their stock investments in Canada. Why don't they? Because, well, the U.S. is 60% of the global market. <laughs> but if you're truly a passive indexer, if you believe that, then you should own the market. And the market is 60% U.S., 40% non-U.S. If you put 100% in U.S., you're taking a big home-centric U.S. bet, which has worked out fabulously over the past 15 years. Why? Earnings have been good. Dividends have been good. There are a lot of buybacks. But the US stock market has also gone from a cyclically adjusted PE of around 18 to 35 today. So this market's gotten more expensive, which means returns are going to be lower on an, on an expected basis. Yeah. And, and what I get from this too is, is, you know, pointedly, even doing something as much as buying a good foreign or world ETF and adding in a bond allocation to that S&P 500, already you've expanded 
your portfolio quite a bit and added in much more protection than you had with just an S&P 500 index. Oh, yeah. And there's, I mean, it doesn't have to be this complicated. You can go to your 401k and buy your target date fund. You want to retire in 2050, put your money in the target date fund. They've already, they're already global, globally diversified. You don't have to worry about it. But if you're going to pick your own investments, then at a minimum, buy VT, which is Vanguard's total stock market ETF. It has US, it has non-US. There's thousands of securities. It's going to do fine. And then complement that with some other asset classes. So David, I wanted to thank you for coming on today. I'll tell you, I get two big things from your 10 questions. I get a lot of little things, but the two big things I get is one is by going through this checklist, we can take out some of the emotional aspects of investing, which I think in many ways often leads us wrong. And then the other portion of it is, as opposed to looking at returns, which I think are important, what I really think about is risk management. And I think if you go through these 10 questions systematically, you're really creating a nice risk management framework for yourself in order to get out of your portfolio what you need. And I think that's the most important. It gets back to this whole um, perfect is the enemy of good. And what we need is a good portfolio that protects us. And certainly, I think these 10 questions help get us there. I want to end this episode the way and every episode by asking you what is up next in your life and specifically, how can people reach out to you if they want to know more? So first and foremost, what's going on over the next few months with money for the rest of us? Well, we're, I mentioned that my sons have joined, joined our firm full-time, so we're launching some additional products, additional podcast episodes. You can find everything that we're doing at moneyfortherestofus.com. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank David Stein. That's a wrap. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was a blast. Tell me, was there anything you feel like we didn't cover or should have covered more? I I keep recording here as part of the after show. So if there's anything you think we missed or or you would have liked to talk about more? No, not really. I mean, for for a focus on uh, investing, I thought it was, you know, it was a great overview. And uh, hopefully it'll be helpful to listeners. And, um, you know, if they have any questions or feel to, you know, they certainly reach out to me. And in our contact information on the website. I really am taken by this checklist idea. When I first heard the checklist manifesto, being a physician, you know, my first feeling was, oh, yeah, you don't have to write it all down, right? Like, like to poo poo it as a physician, because we've, I think, existed for so long on muscle memory and intuition and our gut and doing things the way we've always done them. But as I read the book and thought more and more about it, I realized that even for things in which there is an art as well as a science, having an appropriate checklist can really help you balance that science part out so that you can also practice the art part well, if that makes sense. So I think being a good investor 
has an aspect of art to it. What you decide, how you decide to build your portfolio, how you decide to make your asset garden, etc. I think there is art to it, and I think there's individualism there. But we can, you know, codify that with the checklist and the science behind it to help kind of, I think, create the best asset allocation for us, so to speak. And, and so I really I, love this idea of, of going through that process of asking each question. No, I agree. And you know, I probably became aware of checklists most directly. I was in it, university studying. I had an after-school job at an office product warehouse, which was very simple. We had a cart, you'd get an order, you'd go through the warehouse, you'd pick the item in and you'd put it in the cart and you'd put it in a box and they'd ship it off. I thought it was brilliant at it. I was in university. It's like, how, how hard could this be? So we started getting a lot of errors in, in orders. And so, uh, and when you get an air back, the, the, the order slip would get all, they'd yellow line it and they would put it on the wall on a nail. So they would nail it. And so we started this contest I thought, you know, I didn't change my process. I didn't have a checklist. I did, you know, I went, found the order, pulled the thing, put it in the box, moved on to the next one. Next thing I know, I have a huge stack of papers of failed orders <laughs> because I just didn't check twice. Like it wasn't that hard to get the item, look at it, compare it to the thing and do a double or tri triple check because we get overly confident. Yeah. I thought, how hard could it be to read what the, the particular pen box is and know that it matches it? Well, no, sometimes you need to slow down, be humble and go through some steps, checklist because we'll make better decisions that way. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.